As we open God's Word this morning, our Old Testament reading is from the book of Exodus, where we'll read of two different feasts in Exodus, both of which inform our understanding of the feast that we will read of in Matthew 26. And so first we'll read from Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 14, the instructions regarding the Passover, and we'll read through verse 28. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person should be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day, a holy assembly, no work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread." Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourself according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord your God will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And then you can turn over to Exodus chapter 24 where we read of another feast where Moses and the elders of Israel eat and drink with God on Mount Sinai after the giving of the law, the same law that we just read a few moments ago. Exodus 24, we'll read verses 1 through 11. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and the people answered with one voice and said, All the words the Lord has spoken we will do. 
And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the blood of the covenant, the book of the covenant, and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood, and he threw it on the people, and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you, in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like, uh, very, uh, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. And finally, you can turn to Matthew uh, chapter 26, where both of these feasts come together. The night of the Passover, where Jesus says the very words of Exodus 24, this is the blood of the covenant, where God's people, those 12 disciples, uh, symbolizing the, the 12 tribes of Israel, something of a new people of God, um, eat and drink with the Lord. It says, beginning at verse 17, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful, and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. As they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Beloved, we... Uh, saying Psalm 103 just a few moments ago, where the psalmist says, forget not all his benefits, and then goes on to name several of them. We heard them also in the call to worship. And those benefits that the psalmist extols include 
redeeming your life from the pit, forgiving your iniquities, and filling your mouth with good things. Each of these same benefits we see in this passage in Christ tells us, much like the psalmist, forget them not, but gives us a meal by which we might remember them. It gives us a meal whereby each of these benefits of of Christ's death might be further imprinted on our hearts and on our minds. That Christ's death brings freedom, forgiveness, and feasting for all who believe. The Last Supper teaches us about the benefits of Christ's death, and those are the benefits that we see here. Freedom from bondage, forgiveness of sin, and feasting with God. So we'll look at each of these three benefits this morning from Matthew 26, beginning with uh, freedom from bondage. As we uh, read those two Old Testament passages, we didn't read all of Exodus 12, but in those first 13 verses, right before where we began reading, it spoke of the Lord passing through the land of Egypt and striking all the firstborn, both man and beast, executing judgment against all the gods. This was the last of the ten plagues. Boys and girls, you remember the ten plagues that the Lord brought upon the Egyptians? This was the last of those, occasioned, you remember, by Pharaoh's hard-hearted unwillingness to release Israel from bondage. That same bondage of which Exodus 1 and 2 speak when it says that the Egyptians and Pharaoh specifically made their lives bitter with hard bondage. And so it tells us in those earlier cha- early chapters of Exodus that the Israelites, the children of Israel, groaned because of it and cried out to God, and their cry came up to the Lord because of their bondage. And so that's the context in the book of Exodus of this battle between God and Israel's oppressor, which culminates in that tenth plague. And then they're passing through the Red Sea. And so the Passover, you see, is is about more than just a lamb being slain, but about a lamb being slain in the context of of God's judgment being poured out on the oppressor of his people. The Passover brings freedom from bondage. And so God instructs the children of Israel, I want you to keep this day as a memorial and a feast throughout the generations. And when your children ask you, um, why this feast? I want you to tell them it is a sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of Israel when he struck down the Egyptians and delivered us. The Passover is about deliverance from bondage. It's interesting, earlier in Matthew's gospel, there are these Exodus themes sort of woven throughout of Christ as something of a new Moses. Remember already in Matthew chapter 2, Herod is a sort of Pharaoh-like figure who massacres the infants, just as Pharaoh does in Exodus 1. But just as Moses was rescued as an infant, so it is with with Christ, who's brought down to Egypt, that, that he might later free his people from bondage. Not just bondage to Pharaoh, but to Satan, sin, and death, which Pharaoh and and Herod represent. And so after that, the the narrative in Matthew's gospel fast-forwards to Matthew chapter 3, where Christ uh, goes out to John in the wilderness and passes through the waters of baptism. 
Just as Israel passed through the waters and he spends 40 days in the wilderness, just as Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness after having passed through the waters. Jesus then goes up on a mount to give the law, just as Moses had later on. His face shines and is transfigured, just as Moses was. He, he gives bread from heaven, even as Moses had. In all of these things throughout Matthew's gospel, Christ is being presented as a new Moses who will free his people from bondage. The bondage of evil kings like Herod, who are symbols of that kingdom of darkness, who slay young children and abuse their subjects. He will free them from from the bondage of Pharisees, who Matthew 23 tells us bind heavy burdens on the backs of God's people and will not assist them, much like Pharaoh, who forced them to make bricks without straw. All of this bondage, Matthew is telling us, this bondage of, of evil kings and also of spiritually abusive leaders, Christ comes to free his people from. Just as in Exodus they were delivered from bondage to the freedom and dignity of sonship, we see the same in Christ. That's why he says in Matthew 12, these are my brothers and sisters, those who do the will of my Father in heaven. That's why he says in Matthew 25, the least of these my brothers. In Christ we are granted the dignity of sons. That's why we're enabled to pray our Father, even as Israel in the Exodus was called God's Son. And Christ is our brother. Christ is repeating the pattern of Moses, a mediator preserved in infancy to save his brothers from bondage and grant them the dignity of sons. All of this is in the background of, of Matthew. All of this is in the background of this, this Moses theme in Matthew, which culminates in this Passover event in Matthew 26. Notice if you look earlier in Matthew 26, you see at verse 2 how Christ associates his death with the Passover. Or we see in verse 18, early on in, in our reading, how he calls their meal the Passover. As does Matthew in verse 19, explicitly connecting this meal with, that they are about to partake of with the Passover of old. In fact, one writer goes so far as to say the word connected is in Matthew connecting this meal with the Passover. The word connected does not sufficiently convey the meaning of what is happening here in Matthew 26. Jesus is not just connecting this meal with the Passover in some sort of general correspondence. Rather, Christ is exalting the feast of the Passover by changing it to this sacrament. Notice how he identifies himself with that which is eaten. This is my body. Just as the sacrificial lamb is the meal. The elements of bread and wine remind us of the bread in Exodus 12 and the wine which during the exile becomes a staple in the Passover feast symbolizing the blood of the lamb. And so the bread and the wine, the identification of that which is eaten with the sacrifice itself, even the way that Christ explains the meaning of it, just as the Hebrew fathers would their children, all point to the Last Supper as the fulfillment of the Passover. Not just of the Passover, but of everything the Passover symbolized. Freedom from bondage, 
Freedom from Satan, sin, and death. Freedom from tyrants like Pharaoh. Freedom from tyrants like the Pharisees who, who in heaping uh, burdens of extra-biblical laws on the shoulders of God's people, had become small-town pharaohs, demanding more and more, yet never giving them the grace they need. Christ brings freedom from this bondage that, that God's people, like their forefathers, might enjoy the freedom and dignity of sons as those who were called out of bondage. And this is what Christ's death, beloved, also accomplishes for you. He is the Passover lamb whose sacrifice on your behalf brings freedom from the law. He is the Passover lamb whose sacrifice on your behalf brings freedom from Satan, freedom from sin, freedom from death, freedom from bondage of every kind. Bondage to those sins that so easily entangle you, that you feel you cannot escape. Bondage even from, from or freedom even from, from the bondage of, of sins that have been committed against you. As one day there is, is coming a day when all who appropriate this shed blood of Jesus to themselves by pasting it on the doorposts of their heart will not only be freed from the bondage of sin, but will be freed from the cruelty of all who oppress them. As we sang in Psalm 103, he redeems our life from the pit. He frees us from bondage. That's the first benefit that we see in Matthew 26 of Christ's death, that's not the only benefit that Christ is calling us to remember in his death. It's not the only thing that he calls us to forget not. Um, yes, his death brings freedom from bondage. But we also see very clearly in this passage that it brings forgiveness of sin. We see this in our passage in the way that Christ uh, frames this meal in terms of the Passover and thus interprets his death as a, a new Passover, but he also interprets his death in this passage in terms of that passage from Jeremiah that we heard in Jeremiah 31. Notice what Jesus says in verse 28. He says, this is my blood of the covenant. The covenant to which Jesus refers is the new covenant that was promised in Jeremiah. In fact, you can see in a footnote there in the ESV that some manuscripts even insert the word new, not because that is in the original manuscripts, but, uh, but because it is so clear that the covenant to which Jesus is referring is the promised new covenant. The one promised in those famous words of Jeremiah, behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And in this new covenant that I'll make with them, I'll, I'll take my law and I will put it in their minds and I'll write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. I will forgive their iniquity and their sins I will remember no more. The language of Micah chapter 7, I will take their sins and I will cast them into the bottom of the sea. In the language of Psalm 103, which we sang, I will take them and I will cast them as far as the east is from the west. Colossians 2, nail them to the cross. Our sins forgotten by the one who knows all things. God determines not to bring our sins back up. This was his promise all the way back in Jeremiah 31. And yet since the time when the prophet made that promise, more than six centuries had passed. 
years of, of patient waiting for the fulfillment of that promise and a new covenant would be made and God would remember the sins of his people no more. Centuries of patient waiting since that promise was made. And then one evening in Jerusalem, a poor Nazarene carpenter dares to say this new covenant that was promised by Jeremiah centuries ago is about to be established. The forgiveness of sins is about to be given and the sacrifice to seal this covenant and grant this forgiveness is the shedding of my own blood in my death. It is impossible, John Stott says, to exaggerate the staggering nature of this claim. Christ views his death as the divinely appointed sacrifice by which the new covenant with its promise of forgiveness is going to be ratified. He says, Stott says, he is going to die to bring his people into a new covenant relationship where God will be their God and they will be his people. And even as he said he would make this covenant with Israel and Judah, with all the tribes, Christ pours out this blood of the covenant with 12 disciples present, a new Israel whom he is bringing out of bondage from the old Israel, which had become like Egypt. Not only will he free them from bondage, but he will forgive their sins so that they need not die. He will die in their place as he sheds his blood. The other Old Testament passage in the background of this verse is Isaiah 53. When Christ says that he will shed his blood for many for the forgiveness of sins, that's likely a reference to Isaiah 53 verses 11 and 12 and and the recurring mention of the many for whom the suffering servant will shed his blood that they might be forgiven. It says in Isaiah 53, he will justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. He will bear the sin of many and make intercession for transgressors. And so Christ's combined allusion to Jeremiah 31 on the one hand and Isaiah 53 on the other interprets the meaning of his death in what has been called the most comprehensive statement in Matthew's gospel concerning the redemptive purpose of Christ's death. And it's kind of interesting when, when we get to the actual passion narrative, there's not a whole lot of commentary that, that is explicitly given to us as to the meaning of Christ's death. Of a couple of little pictures like the torn veil that Hebrews will later elaborate on for us and, and give us something more of a commentary on the meaning of Christ's death. But it's been said, this passage that we just read, what we, we, we see here in Matthew 26 and in the Old Testament passages that Christ is weaving throughout in these allusions, gives us the most comprehensive statement in Matthew's gospel concerning the meaning of Christ's death. It will bring remission of sins. It will bring entrance into a new covenant with God where he will be our God and we will be his forgiven people. Where he takes your sins Those sins, perhaps even that you bring with you here this morning, feeling shame, feeling guilt, those sins the accuser continues to bring to mind even as you're sitting here in worship, he takes those sins and remembers them no more. That's the promise of the gospel. I will take your sins and I will remember them no more. 
I'm thinking back to that song of preparation we sang from Psalm 103. Not only does Christ's death redeem our life from the pit or, or free us from bondage, but he also forgives our sin. He sheds his blood that God might remember your sin no more. Your sins placed on him and he bears the wrath and judgment of God for them. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin for you so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. Christ's death brings freedom. Christ's death brings forgiveness. And then finally, Christ's death brings feasting for all who believe. This sermon really is, is built around the Old Testament background of this passage. We see the, the Passover theme looming large over it. We see those allusions to Jeremiah and Isaiah showing us the meaning of Christ's death. But we also see in verse 28 an allusion to that other passage that we read in Exodus. Remember we read of those two different feasts, uh, the feast of the Passover in Exodus 12. But then that other feast in Exodus 24. And you might recall the very words of um, Exodus 24, 8, this is the blood of the covenant are alluded to by Christ in verse 28. If you want to turn back to Exodus 24, this is interesting. It tells us there in verse 8 of Exodus 24 that Moses sprinkles blood on the people. It says, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. And then having sprinkled the blood, Moses goes up with, with Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders who represent the people of Israel. And it says in verse 10 that they saw the God of Israel. Then verse 11, they saw God and they ate and drank. By quoting this passage, Christ is signaling for us, and so is Matthew, that the Last Supper and its perpetual repetition in the Lord's Supper is the fulfillment not only of the Passover, but also this fellowship meal on the mountain with God in Exodus 24. Uh, Dr. Cornel Venema from Mid-America puts it uh, this way. He says, when Christ used the words of Exodus 24 in instituting the Supper, he was appealing to this Old Testament fellowship meal that Moses and the leaders of Israel had on the mountain. The blood atonement which preceded that meal was a type of the blood atonement provided by Christ. And the one-time celebration of that ceremony was a type of the frequent celebration of the Lord's Supper by New Covenant believers who enjoy a fuller communion with the Lord on the basis of that shed blood. Even as that meal was a feasting with God on the basis of shed blood, Christ is signaling every time we partake of the supper, even as you look forward to doing next week, every time we partake of the supper, it is a feasting with God where he is spiritually present. We eat and drink with him. That's exactly what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 and 17, where he says it is a fellowship or communion with him. 
That's exactly what our confession tells us. In Belgic Confession, Article 35, where we see that rich, beautiful language that is used to describe how the Lord's Supper is a fellowship with God where our souls are are refreshed and nourished and strengthened as we fellowship with Him. The blood of Christ sprinkled over us allows us to ascend the mountaintop and feast with God. That's what we're going to be doing in glory. That's what Christ says in in verse 29. And even as as that meal in Exodus 24 was a heavenly meal, a, a foretaste of the feast to come, Christ says this meal, the Lord's Supper, is a foretaste of his Father's kingdom where he will drink wine with us anew. It's a foretaste of the wedding supper of the Lamb, eating and drinking with God. The same wedding feast that Christ has been alluding to in his parables just just before this in Matthew chapter 22 with the parable of the wedding feast or in, in Matthew chapter 25 with the parable of the ten virgins and the bridegroom who comes. In fact, that's why wine is especially appropriate in the Lord's Supper. Because wine in the Bible is a symbol of marital love and joy. That's why there's wine everywhere in the Song of Songs. Song of Songs 1, your love is, is better than wine. It tells us in, in like the, the second verse of the book. And then that wine theme is recurring all throughout. Your love is better than wine. The roof of your mouth is like the best wine. There's wine everywhere in the song. Or, or John chapter 2, at the wedding feast, Christ in his very first miracle produces wine and does so in the context of a wedding. Matthew chapter 9. Christ calls himself the bridegroom and says, you cannot put new wine in old wineskins and says that in the context of feasting. And so there is this theme in the Bible of wine being associated with jubilant feasting and especially that pertaining to marriage. It's one of the reasons why it's good that we use wine and not some other substitute. There is this beautiful theme in the Bible of jubilant feasting, joyous feasting that is symbolized even in the elements that we use. This marital theme is symbolized even in the elements that we use so that every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are reminded that his body is given to us as a husband, his bride. And, and as we drink that wine, we confess with the bride, your love is better than wine. It's intoxicating. The same bridal theme present throughout the Gospels continues here in Matthew 26 as the elements that Christ prescribes have biblical significance. In fact, it's interesting, even in the passage just before this, where uh, Mary of Bethany anoints Christ with spikenard, that seems to be a direct allusion back to Song of Songs chapter 1, verses 12 to 14, where the king is at his table, and the uh, bride-to-be comes in and anoints him with spikenard, and the fragrance fills the house. John chapter 12 makes those allusions quite explicit. And so this bridal theme throughout the gospel, Matthew 9, Matthew 22, Matthew 25, earlier in Matthew 26, continues here as the elements that Christ prescribes have a biblical, uh, biblical, theological, marital significance. They speak of uh, marital love and joy. And in so doing then, they inform the way that we participate in this meal. We do so joyfully. 
going out with singing, even as they do in verse 30. Which is perhaps why Calvin and Spurgeon and uh, now you also, as I understand, advocated singing while the elements were being passed out because it is a joyous occasion. It is a celebration. They're singing as they have partaken of the wine that symbolizes the love of the bridegroom reminds us that the celebration of the Lord's Supper is joyful. It is rightly called in our form a celebration. As one writer recently said, it is a feast and not a funeral. The wine of the supper is a drink of celebration and the songs that we sing focus on the joy that comes from Christ's atoning work. His death brings feasting with God. And that feasting we already taste of now every time we come to his table where we celebrate the forgiveness of sins, where we celebrate freedom from bondage that Christ's death purchased, all the while looking forward to that coming feast in glory. And so this meal simultaneously points us backward and forward. It points us back to the Passover and the promise of the new covenant and all that Christ's death fulfills. And yet at the same time, it points us forward to the coming feast where we will drink wine anew in Christ, uh, the kingdom of his Father as we celebrate the wedding supper of the Lamb, which is already hinted at in Matthew 22 and Matthew 25. And so this feast in the Lord's Supper is a foretaste of that feast. It is as if the crumbs of the table in the Messianic banquet are spilling over into the present age that we might eat and drink with God. All of this is what Christ's death brings. Forget not all his benefits. Christ's death brings freedom, forgiveness, and feasting for all who believe. Yet notice those last four words, for all who believe. This is a call to personally appropriate Christ's death. Even as the Israelites had to paste the blood on their doorposts, so must you. And we see that in this meal in Matthew 26. Again, to quote John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ, he says, if um, in the upper room Christ is giving a drama of his death, then we need to observe what form the drama takes. It is not one actor on a stage with a dozen people in the crowd. Rather, it involves them as well. They were not just spectators of the drama of the cross. They were, in a sense, participants in it. And they can hardly have missed the message. Just as it was not enough for bread to be broken and wine to be poured, but they had to eat and drink it, so it is not enough for Jesus to die, but they must personally appropriate the benefits of his death. The eating and drinking were and still are, Stott says, a vivid, acted parable of receiving Christ as our crucified Savior and feeding on him by faith. We see in this drama of the Lord's Supper the need to appropriate the benefits of Christ's death personally. And there were some um, eating this meal with Christ who failed to get that message. There were some eating this meal with Christ who did not have faith. Verse 21, assuredly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And Judas said, 
Is it I? And Christ responds, you have said it. The benefits of which we have just spoken of our lives being redeemed from the pit, our mouths being filled with good things, our sins being forgiven, Judas did not enjoy those benefits when he partook of this meal. Rather, it increased his judgment. We see here a subtle warning to those who seek to come to the table without having taken hold of Christ. We see here a subtle warning for those who sin in secret, as Judas does in verse 14, just before this passage, thinking that no one knows what he's done. But Christ brings it to light. We see here a subtle warning for those who think that their sin is profitable, as Judas does in verse 15. But Christ shows him it will cost him. It would be better for him if he had not been born. We see here a subtle warning for those who call Christ rabbi, as Judas does in verse 25, but do not call him Lord, as the others do in verse 22. Even as the disciples ask, is it I, this passage functions to show us not only the joys of the supper, but also the need before coming to the supper to examine ourselves and ask, is it I? must never grow tired of asking that question, do I love the Lord Jesus or would I betray him? Do I value him like Mary of Bethany in the passage just before this, or do I value him like Judas? Do I call him Lord of my life, or is he simply a rabbi, a teacher, one from whom I derive some kind of intellectual stimulation? So not only do we see the benefits of Christ's death, which which this meal so clearly sets forth, but we also see the manner of approach, one of humble self-examination. And yet an examination that does not end in despair for those who look to Christ in faith. But under these words from J.C. Ryle, an encouragement to those who, examining themselves, do see their sin, do see the weakness of their faith, but also look to Christ. He says, the little company to which this bread and wine were first administered was composed of poor, unlearned men who loved Christ, yet were weak in faith and knowledge. They knew but little of the full meaning of their master's sayings and doings. They knew but little of the frailty of their own hearts. They thought that they were ready to die with Christ, and yet that very night they would forsake him and flee. All of this our Lord knew perfectly well. The state of their hearts was not hidden from him, and yet he did not keep back from them the supper. Ryle says there is something to learn from this. It shows us plainly that we must not make great knowledge or great strength an indispensable qualification for communion. A man may know but little and be of no greater strength than a child in spiritual maturity, but is not on that account to be excluded from the table, says Ryle. Does he feel his sins? Does he look to Christ? Does he desire to serve him? If so, Christ says, come. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Come, ye thirsty, come and welcome. God's free bounty glorify. True belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. 
Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you bless us with every spiritual blessing in your Son, redeeming our life from the pit and freeing us from bondage, even death, forgiving our iniquities, however great they are, and filling our mouths with good things that we might feast with you. Lord, we thank you for the innumerable benefits that we derive from Christ's death. We thank you for the wonderful benefits that we are able to enjoy as we come to his table. And so we pray for each member of this church that you would instill in each one a longing to feast with Christ, even for those who have not yet professed their faith, a longing and desire, a great eager excitement and anticipation to one day profess their faith and be seated with Christ at his table to feast with him. And Lord, we pray that you would give everyone here, every time that we come to your table, a greater and greater assurance that all of these benefits we've just heard of from Exodus 12 and Exodus 24 and Jeremiah 31 are ours for Christ's sake. Amen.